Hi, I'm your host, Alan Cowley, and this week we have a slightly different Invested Investor podcast for you. I'm here sat with Peter Cowley, my co-founder and father, to talk about the Invested Investor movement and what we've learned along the way. So Peter and I set up the Invested Investor in 2017. This is your 13th startup? 13th or 14th. 13th or 14th. (laughs) Having set up your first over 35 years ago. Um, alongside this, you are a seasoned angel investor and committed invested investor. So we've interviewed over 80 people from around the world. Um, we and our listeners have learned so much from them. This podcast is going to be about our own journey and also yours, touching on um, on your investments and what you've learned along the way. Um, and obviously, we've got our very own leading invested investor here to talk about that. So let's just start with the beginning of the Invest Investor. So what was the original vision? Yes, okay. So first of all, Alan, happy birthday. <laughs> it happens to be recorded on his birthday today. <laughs> um, so the original vision was slightly different. It was to have some sort of conference or society for helping angel investors become better angels. So it started as that, this was about five years ago, and I talked through with several people. And there's quite a lot of enthusiasm for it from other people, but less so from me, because it it just felt like it would be a one-off event once every year. So it gradually morphed by talking to other people into being a content delivery of some form. And that content has ended up being obviously the the first book and now the second book, and the podcast and uh, information on the website. So that happens, it it sort of formalized into that, well, it, it became that form, which it is now, about six months before you joined and we formed the company. So that was about three years ago now. About three years ago, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so that was about three years ago and I, I came on board two and a half years ago. How do you think from that starting point it's morphed in those years? So since we kind of inc- almost incorporated the company until now, how has it changed since then? Because obviously startups pivot, don't they? Yes. And and we've, we've probably pivoted in many different ways along the way to try and understand how to run this business. So so from that first start point, you've kind of given an overview, but to where we are now, how has it changed? Yeah, well, first of all, of course, I'm pretty busy with a lot of other things. And so I was no way I could make into anything just by myself. So I, I had been thinking about who to get to do the work. And I didn't think at that time it'd be anything like a full-time role. And so I'd been talking to people. And then, of course, you came back to Cambridge from London and it all started to fit into place. And, and there are great reasons why it's been absolutely wonderful or is work, it is wonderful working with you and, um, and how much you've learned from this and how much I've learned from you as well at the same time. So but to begin with, it just was going to be podcasts with the idea of having a book, but uh, the actual content, in fact, even the name, I think, of the book at that point hadn't been fixed. I think it was fixed some weeks or months later on a punt, actually, with a guy called Brian Harris, who also helped name the second book as well. Um, so we started with the podcast, and I'd recorded them. You helped me with that, and you built, built the website, etc. And then we uh, interviewed a few people to see who should write the book, because it was clear that, uh, well, it wasn't clear that you couldn't write it, but it was certainly clear that I couldn't write it because uh, A, I'm an engineer and, you know, a computer guy, and B, my English is 
isn't sorry, in my English isn't all that good. And um, see, I didn't think I had the time. So that's when we found Kate Kirk, who was almost the obvious choice anyway, because she's written a number of books about the Cambridge community. So that happened later in 2017. So and, and then it stabilized really into just making sure the content got out there. So the content was gradually being created. We've probably done about eight or nine podcasts by the end of 17. The book really had been planned and Kate had been given the go-ahead by the end of that year, but it didn't start to be written until January 17, uh, January 18. Okay. So what? So you, we, we, well, we got an author in, um, but why did, why did we go down that route and we self-published? Why did we not um, go to a publisher and just get all that done sorted? Yeah, when the, the author we'd probably have had to find anyway, though, of course, she, she's a combination of author and ghostwriter here. Her name's on the book, but um, it, it was definitely my brand that was the first book and more so her brand on the second book. Um, we did that primarily because I, for two reasons. One, I wanted you to learn running a business. So this would include accounting and, um, and building a small team and marketing and everything. And secondly, the gross margin if one self-publishes is much, much higher than if you go through publishing. And the sort of numbers, I don't know, I'm happy to talk about this on the podcast. Uh, on a £15 book, you probably make a pound or so if you go through a publisher. Now, of course, you haven't got all the hassle of printing books and marketing and everything else. And you can make around about £10 if you go you self-publish. So it's about £5 to actually print and distribute through Amazon or whatever method one uses. Um, so that's a 10x increase in, in gross margin, £1 to £10. Of course, you have to do your own. The, the, the printing isn't a problem once we've found out how to do it. The distribution by Amazon is a difficult thing to understand, but it's there. Uh, the big issue is whether the volume will be as many should one self-publish, and we'll never know the answer to that. Yeah. So there's a bit of advice for anyone that's thinking about um, writing their own book and what to do. Yeah, you get your gross margin, and you get a bit more money for each book, or a lot more money lot for more each money, but it's a hell of a lot more more work. But you do. I think one thing you didn't touch on there is also control of the content, which I understand that if you even if you write a book and you give it to a publisher, they can still change things and edit things. Whereas we had complete, we've had complete control on editions and everything like that, haven't we? On design of it and yes, I mean, that's true. Though I think in this case, because in fact, in many cases there wouldn't be that much editorial control, but they would certainly run with that process. Uh, I think more importantly, we had the um, the ability to create our own brand because I'm sure the brand would have been altered by them probably and then led to higher sales of course yeah so um <coughs> going down the self-publishing route has been a very interesting journey and i think we've both learned a huge amount from it bear in mind primarily though that <clears throat> most authors are content providers and not business people so they're not actually they don't even want to learn never mind you know the dirty thing pricing and marketing and everything they want to create content that people read primarily so therefore the publisher does a great job for them <clears throat> in our case we were running a business that had content so we looked at it in quite a different way from the normal writer or author okay so this content that you're talking about um is our first book the investor investor the new rules for startups scale-ups and angel investing and our new book that should be out at the moment, Founder to Founder, Tips and Tales from 100 Entrepreneurs and Investors. So we've also produced podcasts, obviously. You're listening to one right now. But what other content 
have what what else has been produced and also a question just after that just quickly say that is what makes you originally credible to write this stuff and, and educate the, the the startup world yeah two very different questions there so let's do the first one so the other content has obviously been news items as well thought pieces the blogs i've been writing every month or so um obviously social media like linkedin linkedin and, and twitter um, but there's more to that because actually I've been doing quite a lot of lectures and you've been doing quite a few as well, to lectures and talks um, and doing training. Um, I've done some training overseas, um, which you created the content and I delivered. So it, it's been a lot more than just the, the podcasts and the, um, the, the book, though they are clearly the most consumed part of what we've done. Um, on the other, so basically the, next, the other part of the question was, why is my brand such that I am listened to? Now, that is something that I really don't know. <laughs> I've got to the point where I'm quite well known in the UK and around Europe because of my role in Brussels. That, uh, and uh, I'm very, very keen to share my experiences. I'm pretty open and transparent what I do, as you'd see on my website. And it was just a sort of giving back. My my background was, you know, a bit of uh, engineering, computer science at uni, a bit of corporate life, and then many, many, many years of being an entrepreneur, which is very, very hard work. And all the entrepreneurs listening to this, particularly if you're about two, three or four years into your journeys, will be completely, completely empathizing with, with that statement. Um, and it was, so when I sort of stumbled into angel investing about 12 years ago, having uh, effectively co-founded a business that sold quite quickly. I really love the concept of investing, helping the entrepreneurs, but as I like to say, though it's probably not the right analogy, it's like uh, being a grandparent, although I'm not a grandparent, where you can give the baby back to the your children between board meetings in the same way as you would do. So effectively, when you're actually an entrepreneur, you've got everything going on. You've got the HR problems and the customer problems and the supply problems and the regulatory problems and the money problems and everything. I, I, I would have that at a board meeting. And in between, if the entrepreneurs, I, I, my investees get back to me, but generally I can forget about it and let them worry about it. So actually, because I'm now 64, I started in my early 50s. At this point in my life, it's actually much less stressful being an investor than being an entrepreneur. Though having said that, you and I still run CamData and the Invest Investors, which are two small, small lifestyle businesses. Yeah. Um, so we've heard from a lot of um, people over the last couple of years, um, whether that's through the Startup Spotlight or for podcasts and various bits and pieces. Um, as an investor that's been doing it for nearly 15 years now, what do you think you can add to what we've already learned in previous episodes? <laughs> that's a great question. And I've listened to probably 80% of all the episodes. I really love them. It's, I mean, they're not all as good as all the other ones, but I really enjoy it. I enjoy the way you, know, you swapped over and did the interviewing. So you've probably done two-thirds and I've done one-third of them. And you tease out the sort of things I tease out of people. It's important that humor's in there. So, But generally, Generally, when the questions asked, what lessons have you learned? What can you teach? There is a lot of same old, same old. There's a huge amount of hire slowly, fire fast, all these sort of mantras that, that wander around in our industry. 
I suppose what I have done, which is more than I think anybody you've interviewed, has been, except possibly Chris Mayers, I've been on more journeys than anybody else. So I've been on these 14 or so of my own founded or co-founded businesses, most of which I founded by myself, and I've been on now 70, low 70s of investments. So I've been on 85 journeys, of which uh, of the 14, 12 I've closed, sold, or even gone bust of my own businesses, and I've just done the numbers this morning. Uh, it's uh, 20 of the investments. That's 20 plus 12, 32. So I've still got 50 or so journeys I'm on. And these go back, of course. In fact, it's at more than 40 years because my first business was to run a traveling discotheque, whatever. You, you probably don't know what that is, or certainly the listeners won't. But it's, it's bigger DJ, but not saying anything and not mixing your own music back in 1975. So this is. 44 years ago now. So I've, I've taken risk and had fun and had a lot of pain as well for a long time. So that's probably what I can add to more than most of my colleagues within the Cambridge Angels have had a single successful exit. So they've been entrepreneurial, they've come out of it with sometimes a huge amount of money, sometimes a relatively small amount of money, and they haven't had the ups and downs in the way that I have. So... So you're saying that resilience from the startups and all the journeys is that what you? No, I'm add saying or? I'm saying that I've experienced so much more. So I've experienced huge and, and terminal, in one case, cash flow problems, um, and what to do about it. I, I often use a little story about the VAT man who came into the company CamData years ago, and he stuck little stickers on the desks and the PCs saying he was in possession of that. He wasn't actually because he hadn't actually got a court order at that point. But it meant when the next uh, bailiff came in to try and get some money out of us from a creditor, they'd look round and see all these stickers and just walk straight out of the door. I don't suppose anybody else in my communities had to go through that. But that was so painful. Uh, so it's that. It's the experiences. It's, it's, you know, hiring loads of people, having to fire loads of people, you know, for sometimes, like, I don't know what it's mentioned in the book, where I had to fire somebody because he'd thrown a... a a screwdriver at one of my other employees. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff, and that, that's partly reflected in my grey hair and now grey beard. Um, that's, uh, so that's possibly why I've got more to offer. What I haven't got, though, and this is very noticeable, particularly amongst the group, I haven't been involved in a company that's truly scaled. So this is companies that have gone past the 50 to 100 mark. And that's where I actually I've found that I can't contribute as much and I shouldn't really be treading on that. We should have other people coming onto the board at that point. Okay. So w- w- what have been the best bits of all this? So you've talked about a couple of things that were, were shit. So what have, what have been the best bits? Or well, maybe well, my life, bits? my life, having well, children. <laughs> well, the, um, the entrepreneurial and the investor side of it. Well, let's go to the investor side of it. The... Yeah, well, yeah, I'm often asked that. Which is your best investment? Who are your best entrepreneurs? Well, just the best bits. Like, what, what's yeah, memorable? Yeah, it's, it's people. It's working with people. It's seeing people develop. It's not make, making money out of it. Though, obviously, that's quite useful to re- you know, re- replenish the money that I've invested. Uh, I haven't yet got to a cash-on-cash point where everything I've invested has come back again. It's looking pretty close. Uh, We're recording in November at the moment in 2019. I think if we 
had this conversation in three months' time, I'd have been saying, I've actually now got all my money back and I've got 50 new investments. But it isn't that that matters. It's spending the time with the entrepreneurs, seeing them develop. Sometimes it's frustrating, but it's actually wonderful to do that. It's, in many ways, it's no different. It, in fact, I'm mentoring, but it's no different, I suspect, from being a teacher. I don't think I could cope with being a teacher, but I think seeing the children, or some children, not all of them clearly, increase and develop. And of course, I've experienced this with you, Alan, haven't I? You know, the way you've developed over the last two or three years is phenomenal. You know, you obviously left it a bit late to get back into sort of normal uh, working life. But the times you had before that, and I don't know if you've, you've mentioned it on, on podcast, has been phenomenal. You're traveling around the world for several years. So seeing you develop. So it, is, it does come to the best bits are definitely the people and not the money. Yeah, I'd say over the last two and a half years, having run this, run this company um, with you and predominantly in the last year and a half, the amount I've learned is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, mm. And and whether or not, and I sometimes say this to people, it's it's not whether I, I've, although I know a lot about podcasting, for instance, I don't know something expertly, but I know a lot about a lot of things, if that makes sense, because there's so many different aspects that go yeah, on the, constantly. Yeah, the finance and yeah, the cash the flow hiring and the hiring, yeah, exactly, yeah. and the social media. And B2B, B2C. Yes, and, and sponsorship and all the other things. I mean, yeah, I, I say the same thing, though it, I think it'd obviously be broader, and clearly I've, you know, a few more years of life than you, is that I know so much because I've seen 10, 12, 13,000 business plans now and seen well over 1,000 entrepreneurs pitch to me. I, I know, I don't know B2C very well, but I know almost all aspects of B2B to a relatively shallow depth. And that's fascinating. I mean, one of, one of the main drivers of my life is to continue to learn and contribute every single day. And, and I do that. So what, what do you think of this business then you've learned from it? The investment <laughs> investor. Well, I've learned that yet again, that a B2C business is hard work. And that the B2C element of this is not the training, because that's usually done with a group. Uh, it's it's you know, selling books. It comes back down to this cost of customer acquisition, lifetime value. The lifetime value, if you sell one book, is the gross margin of one book. With, let's say it's £10. It's probably a bit less than that. It's probably near £8. What's the cost of acquisition of that customer? I still haven't a clue. I still don't know whether the tweets we send out, how that relates back to books. I know that if I'm standing in front of somebody and I've got a book in my hand, I can probably sell it to them. But, you know... Eight pounds of my time for gross margin. That's probably not that many tens of minutes. You know, certainly isn't as much as an hour. So, is that worthwhile? So, but I, what I, of course, I get out of that is spending the time with the person, not on the sales process that I've been selling for forty odd years. It's um, it's the enjoyment they they uh, that interaction and the enjoyment I know they'll get. And, the, and what they learn from it, the book itself. So yeah, the B2C element of it, I've learned again that I don't like. And I've done B2C in the property business, I've done B2C in the tech business. So I have been doing this. And I often say it, it's get down to this customer acquisition cost. I can work it out in an enterprise sale, but I cannot work it out in a consumer sale. So how do people, how do these these investors that purely invest in B2C? And- well, two things. One, uh, experience, their own experiences, and obviously positive experiences, because Many of those have been entrepreneurial in the B2C space, whether that's retail or food or or clothing or whatever. Um, and secondly, uh, which is the same also for B2B, it's spending time working these numbers out. 
by doing transactions and counting how much the cost is, etc., and therefore working out what the customer acquisition cost is. And thirdly, which is the only way you can do it if you're pitching for somebody, pitching for money, is to use uh, com- comparatives, trying to work it out from, if you've got a business that, say, is doing delivering or something, try and work out from the accounts of Deliveroo or talk to somebody. For instance, I'm only taking Deliveroo as an example there, um, what, what their cost of customer acquisition it probably is and then you can work out the lifetime value probably so you know this is, any business plan that comes to me has assumptions in it on the finances you've got to get them from somewhere okay um what do you um just before, while we finish up on these kind of what we've learned <clears throat> from the 80 or so that we've that we've done and we've interviewed and, and things like that what are the key things you've actually learned from some of our uh, interviewees uh, that everybody's passionate mm-hmm. about what they do, that they really enjoy it. I mean, that it's probably self-selecting because they probably wouldn't do a podcast unless they wanted to. They, a, they enjoyed what they do, and B, they wanted to, to help other people. So it, it's certainly true, the passion, the realism as well, particularly maybe when they're a bit older, probably a bit older than you, uh, you know, how, how, how really, really, really difficult it is to be an entre- a successful entrepreneur. But, and, and how challenging it is and how can it affect your family life, et cetera, and your finances, but how rewarding it is as well. On the, uh, on the, that's on the entrepreneurial side. On the investment side, um, as I've said many times, one shouldn't be an angel investor unless you do two things. One is to build up a reasonable sized portfolio because it become, it's a numbers game. Whatever you see in front of you and when you invest, they'll have pivoted and moved and the market will have moved, et cetera, to the point where you actually get your money back times a multiple of some sort. And secondly, that you've really got to enjoy what you're doing. You've got to interact. You can't um, use it as an asset class, an asset class being you know, property or cash or bonds or, or, or stock market shares. Uh, you, you, you can't disallocate it and say, I'm going to get a return out of this because with luck and with decent portfolio and with a lot of patience, you should get 20, 25% return per year. That is huge compared with current bank rates, so one, one and a half, deposit rates, one, one and a half percent. So, but if you can offset the risk there and the time involved by enjoying the journey, by interacting with the entrepreneurs, then it's hugely fulfilling. So obviously you're in, if you're able to interact with the entrepreneurs, but you're saying not an asset class, but enjoy it, how does it differ from gambling then? <laughs> Well, the big one, I love this story. If you're going to gamble on something, generally you know the result quite quickly. So if you're going to gamble on a football match, you're probably going to get the result by the weekend because you usually gamble during the week. It, with, with ancient investing, you can wait 10 years. So the feedback loop between doing something and getting the result is astro- I mean, to the point where I'm going to stop investing next year when I get to 65 because I don't want to leave, assuming I live into my late 70s, who knows how long, I don't want to leave you um, with a mess of unfinished business, which is a whole load of shares. So it takes such a long time. So the other thing about gambling, which there's some similarities, if you really know the form, say, of a horse race, and you know what the jockey does with that horse on that type of grass and that sort of weather and dot, 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 then you've got information which can help make the decisions as opposed to a punter if we go down to new market races, new market races and just put 20 quid on and lose it all. We're just punters then. And it's sort of similar with angel investing. You are trying to choose based on information, based obviously on the, on the opportunity, the size of the opportunity, the plan, 
but also on your interpretation of whether the entrepreneurs, i.e. the jockey, and people do use a jockey horse analogy sometimes, whether the jockey or jockeys, because it needs to be an entrepreneurial team, are going to be good enough to run through that journey to get a reasonable result out of it. But I guess a big difference, and I can't think of any on the top of my head, sporting gambling, where along that journey, say the, the race, the, the, the race, you're actually able to help Correct. The, the that, jockey that, out at, at points, aren't you? You can't get behind the horse and push it along any quicker, can you? <laughs> that's right. Exactly right. That's a, that's a great extension to the analogy there, that it is actually possible if you're close enough, either on the board or interested shareholder, you could spend some time helping them, connecting them. Um, you know, you could be argued that you're cutting the grass in front of the horse or or making the fence more sturdy or something. We can go crazy with this analogy, so we probably ought to stop here. Um, but you're right, you're actually helping them and, and improving, hopefully, <laughs> not reducing the chances of success. Yeah, okay. Um, so we... we um we obviously educate the startup ecosystem with all our with all the content that we have, and and this is what you talked about the vision at the beginning and, and trying to change the mentality. Um, what good actually comes from this education and kind of um, and and have you seen it in the last two and a half years? Are we ever going to see it? What? Yeah. So again, two two elements. To this one is you know is is what we're doing actually going to make an effect on the world which is a really big philosophical question, we'll answer that. And secondly, has there been feedback on this journey, which we can see that it's actually been worthwhile? It's, I think it's pretty clear. And of course, I know this industry pretty well now, having traveled all over the world, speaking at conferences and knowing people in the States and Singapore and all over Europe and, and South Africa. We went to Cape Town a year ago this weekend uh, to an angel conference. It, it's clear that startups are are much more prevalent. Uh, it's become a sort of almost career choice in many cases um, because the labour market's changing and has been changing. I'm sure it hasn't changing that much than it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago. It certainly is compared to when I was growing up. And it's changing further as we get robotization of um, you know, both software and hardware robots. The Being an entrepreneur almost becomes a requirement for some people, plus the level of independence, the way the media and, and press are talking about it, etc., so that's on the side of the entrepreneur. If you look at it on the other side, in terms of the way that big companies and corporates are changing, they they just they seem the rate of change of things on the world, mainly driven by technology, is such that the big companies are proving that they're proving again they, they're not as agile as they need to be to cope with change, and the agility is happening in the small companies, not the very small companies clearly, but the sort of ones who've scaled past a certain size. So that's giving them, um, uh, effectively giving them suppliers for their own use and onto their own customers and potential acquisitions which they can buy. And the, these acquisitions, there's plenty of those, those around. There aren't that many in, in number, but they do happen. So therefore, if you look at that, you go forward another 10 or 15 years, I believe that the number of startups will continue to grow and the big corporates will continue to purchase. I can't see past my own lifespan, say, 30 years out, as to what the globe will actually look like, it, it's still going to have to consist of large organisations, there's no doubt. There's both scale and um, reach are quite important in the current capitalist system. It may be there's a sort of implosion back again to local produce, local supply, and that scale doesn't really work. 
but that is a huge societal change that you know we're not going to talk about now. So, so you think that there'll be more very, very large organisations, multinational organisations, and more startups, entrepreneurs, but that middle section, the kind of medium to large size companies, they are diminishing. They're either they've either gone bust or they've got huge. No, I, I know. I don't think there'll necessarily be more of the big companies. I think there'll be more of the middle companies actually. So I think the startups are there. But the startups, there's a lot of noise at that level. There's a lot that don't last very long. It's the scale ups that really matter. So these are the ones there's lots of definitions of scale ups, let's say between about fifteen and hundred and fifty people, you know, the the bottom end of the SME. Uh, the big corporates I'm not really sure. So I think it may well be the smaller companies, particularly as you know, as things change in terms of people's approach to travel and air travel and um, you know, supply of energy, etc. I think that things will become more localized. I mean, you don't got to look at the way the, the popular or the, the movements are happening in Trump sort of pulling the reins in, the UK fiddling around that with Brexit at the moment, other countries as well, that things will become more, it will become less globalized. It does feel like that. So okay. I think it's the middle section of companies, the ones who've scaled into the hundreds. And this is just my view, it doesn't come from anywhere else, uh, were the ones that will be the sort of more prevalent in 20, 30 years' time. Um, so that's that's the future, but how, how are we seeing that the invest investor is actually changing at the moment, the present? Yeah, we, we had that from right from the beginning. We, we discussed that. What sort of, how are we going to, sort of, what KPIs are we going to use to try and work out whether we're succeeding or not? And we sort of knew that we could measure Twitter impressions and book sales, of course, and podcast downloads some, somewhat. It's a bit sort of non-transparent, is the podcast download industry at the moment. But how can we actually get the feedback? And the feedback has been purely, at the moment, as far as I can see, subjective. It's people coming to us and said, I've learned a lot from that book. I've made some changes to the way I'm doing things. Whether that's been positive or negative changes, we don't know for definite. But confident that the ones have come back to us have done it in a positive way so that they will hopefully improve the journeys. So we were never going to know whether the you know transparency, honesty, trust, which is what the book's all about, is the relationship between investors and investees. I'm pretty confident that is improving. Just see that from people's transparency. I was looking at a VC's website the other day, and that much more on that than there was before in terms of what they want. And if you look at my website, of course, I'm almost over-transparent. So that, that's the case. But I still don't think we can. I think we're going to have to look at this again in five years' time, probably, and, and reanalyze that and have the same conversation. And then from that, realize, yes, we have had positive results. I don't think we can have negative results. Whether we've had as much result as we'd like, I'm not sure. Okay. Well, in response to that, if the listeners could actually write some comments on our website, that'd be absolutely fantastic. Or just email them in. Or, or feedback. Or, yes, yeah. yeah, please. Um, okay, so let's just um, go on to um, one of my final questions here. And what do you think the actual startup world is missing? What could improve it? Well, it, that, it depends where you're talking about. I mean, with my European role, it's clear that the entrepreneurs are all over Europe, but the money isn't. Now, we know that for the tax reasons that came in about 35 years ago in the UK, uh, and the fact we speak English and the fact digital adoption being pretty quick in the UK, that the, in Britain has become much more dominant in terms of startups and funding than anywhere else in Europe. Something like half of all the early stage funding in the whole of Europe 
comes through the UK. And of course, most of that, unfortunately, is in the southeast of England, um, possibly driven somewhat by the money made in London, particularly in the city, possibly driven somewhat by the universities, Cambridge, Oxford and other universities. So the money's there, but also the entrepreneurs are around in the area as well, particularly Syrian entrepreneurs. And so within my European role, cross-border investing, i.e. money from one country going to investments in another country, is something we're working very hard on. And so those connections, and I was, I was with uh, Linda Smith, who we've podcast last week, actually. Uh, we're going to cut that bit, Mark. I was with somebody last week uh, who uh, was heavily involved in the angel industry in the States, and they're having a similar problem. You know, they speak the same language, it's the same market, mostly the same tax rules, etc. but they're still cross-border, as in cross-state, and particularly over long distances, isn't happening as much. So getting the capital in the right place is one thing. But the other thing, which is probably even more important, is the, the industry, the support for entrepreneurs improving. And it is doing, but it's doing pretty slowly. There are more and more accelerator programs, incubators, of course, but there still needs to be the, the people who will help best an entrepreneur are people who have experienced it before, not somebody who's trained to be a coach. So it's the mentoring, somebody mentoring using previous knowledge as opposed to coaching where you're using a toolbox. I mean, coaching still works, but it works much better in a bigger environment than it does at early stage. So increasing the smartness, which again is happening gradually, you know, as people experience the more activity, the more... Uh, experience is generated and therefore the more education can be done from people who've experienced it before. But it's, that's happening t- too slowly for the requirements and the pull by the entrepreneurs uh, and too slowly also for quite a lot of governments and local governments around Europe because I see this in the way that they're trying to do it. What is getting in the way slightly is government, uh, either EU government or local government backed grant funding and quasi-equity funding, because that doesn't necessarily bring smart money in. And commonly, it doesn't bring smart money in at all. It just brings money. And therefore, the entrepreneurs, particularly if they're younger entrepreneurs, sub-30 sub or so, are probably going to make too many mistakes, really, to grow the business. But at the same time, you if you want more entrepreneurs to to actually exit and get into that process and then, and then turn themselves over almost into a um, transition into an investor, don't you need that, though? Like, because otherwise the the number of startups being invested in will obviously shrink a lot without these grant grant funding and things. Yeah, like that. that's certainly true. Uh, but in the end, the differences are the scale ups, things that scale into decent size. And I'm not just talking about monetary returns for the founders and the investors. I'm talking about employment. I'm talking about intellectual property generation. Um, talking about market changes, market education, etc. It's lots of little small startups, although are necessary because who knows which startups become scale-ups. I'm trying to guess that. I'm trying to kiss the right frogs, of course, uh, as, uh, and I'm good trying to help them turn into princesses. Or terrible analogy there, <laughs> but it's the um, it's it, it's getting them over that hump, providing enough funding, enough customer income, etc., to the point where they scale up is the only thing that's going to make a difference to local economies. I was in Portugal a couple of weeks ago. They they're really struggling to to grow their startups. There's lots of them, you know, and, and you know, you need capital to grow a technology startup usually. You don't really with a service one, you can probably use it in debt debt finance, but you angels don't invest in 
service businesses generally. So you need the, the capital for the tech ones to develop the tech because you can't get customers straight away. And also then to educate the market and then the capital availability for growth capital is probably there, but there's this big gap. So that's, that's what needs to be done at the moment in the startup world. Also, the education. So just let's just do a quick plug for ourselves and for the listeners that Founder to Founder, The Tips and Tales from 100 Entrepreneurs and Investors is a book written by the people that you're talking about, these people that have been through those journeys, the entrepreneurs, the investors, and some of the grant. We've had some in the mm. UK and whatnot. And, and what this book is teaching people is this, this journey of a startup and, and, and the difficulties along the way, the ups and downs, the challenges from those people, isn't it? Those mm. people that you were just talking yeah, about. Yeah, they, they haven't actually written it, that Kate Kerr no. wrote it, but they, well, it's they, their story. It's their, it? Exactly, it's their content. It's In fact, in some respects, they have written it because the transcription of the podcast has been used and then analysed. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, that, I mean, that's... I, we hope, both of us hope, that the way the content's delivered through that, the openness, honesty, the ups and downs, will be really strong benefit for entrepreneurs. Less so probably for investors. The first book was aimed at investors, mostly read by entrepreneurs, as it turns out. This is fairly and squarely aimed at, at entrepreneurs. At, at probably any stage of the journey, the ones who want to be entrepreneurs, the ones who probably never be an entrepreneur at that level, right through to the people who might have had seven, eight, nine years of journey already. Yeah. Okay. And one final, final one. Uh, in Lloyd's Yes Business Can, we've written a piece on how to find the right investor, um, which anyone will find that's, that's thinking about starting their own business and wants to go down this route of, um, of finance, uh, they should read that. Um, so, Peter, thank you very much for today. It's been fun. It's been interesting. It's been very different. Yeah. Um, and, and this is the end of season four. So thanks very much. Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Investor Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investorinvestor.com, or via a number of online podcast platforms. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content.